You have the new Wilco album, sir? Uh, no, I don't. No? I don't either. <laughs> but ask me if the new Wilco album is good. Is the new Wilco album good? Oh my god. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Kitchfork Podcast. So I am Liz Ryerson. And I'm Max Cohen. And this podcast is uh, a new project that we're trying about kind of the uh, music website, Pitchfork Media, the big empire of music, (laughs) Pitchfork Media, Um, and specifically in uh, the relationship of it and the music culture of indie and online music culture of the 2000s from kind of like an anti-nostalgia perspective. So right. kind of like the 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 overla- the underlying theme of all this is kind of talking about the gentrification, I guess you could say, of of indie and the way that uh, Pitchfork and the the sort of music culture of the 2000s really embodies that. Yeah, it's it's sort of a means of of revisiting our upbringing in a very uh, uh, unromantic way. Well, yeah, because both of us are around the age, I think, where, you know, we grew up with this stuff being very formative and very important. But by the time we were fully cognizant, grown adults out in the world, like this era was kind of over. Is that Mm -hmm. would you? It is. And it's and the the vestiges of it that are still around are strange shadows uh, haunting, haunting the periphery of the music landscape. So it's a fun thing to revisit in this context. Yeah, and and I think it'll be an interesting way to talk about. So we're going to talk about uh, one album per each episode. I mean, perhaps, you know, we'll have episodes that are differently themed or whatever, but that's mostly going to be the, the focus. And a lot of them are going to be albums that were, you know, big, uh, kind of staple albums for, for Pitchfork and sort of the culture of the time. So we're going to start with a big one. And why don't you introduce the album? It's still... F- this album is so unassuming for being as big as it is. But yeah, we are starting with the legendary uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by uh, hometown hero uh, Wilco. <laughs> yes, from 2002, technically 2001, whatever. Uh, we can get into that, actually. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, because we're talking about uh, Pitchfork, we will read from some of the Pitchfork review. We'll do that later. Um, but of course, we have to say what the Pitchfork score is, because if you followed uh, online mu- music discourse of that era, even till today, to be honest, um, the, the main thing that anyone cared about was the score. And of course, they gave right. this the hollowed 10.0 score, which they very rarely gave anything. Um, Still hilarious to me that Pitchfork had the decimal point. This was the most like granular rating system in all of music. 
Oh God! Yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll have plenty of uh, time and space to talk about the Pitchfork rating system. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this album came out in. Um, so, uh, basic facts around uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It came out in uh, 2002 in April of uh, what is it? April 23rd, 2002. But it was originally intended to be released on 9/11, which is so right. bizarre, and has led to a lot of like weird, you know, kind of speculation around the lyrics that I, I think is kind of ridiculous, but. You know, there are, like, pictures of two towers on the cover, and there's, like, kind of some lyrics that uh, make discussions of that that I'm sure we can talk about. Um, the two uh, towers th- being the... What are the names of those buildings in Chicago? What there's a Marina, It's Marina City. Marina City. Uh, the Meridi Center complex, which is uh, hilariously kind of trashy and weird-looking. The, the interesting thing, so it wasn't released on September 11, 2001, but it was streamed for free online at uh, September 18th, 2001. So like several months before its release, making it one of like the first that I, definitely the first that I can remember uh, instances of like an artist, you know, going independent and streaming their album for free online, you know, something that Radiohead would go on to do and so on and so forth. Yeah, it w- that was a, a very big deal and sort of helped uh, the publicity of the this album because uh, the whole thing with this album is that, um, you know, based on kind of things that were happening with their label at the time, which was Reprise Records um, under Warner Brothers, uh, they got dropped from their label based on this album. And... Uh, that's and it was getting leaked online because you know this is the mm-hmm. era where everyone started to be concerned with stuff getting leaked. I know Kid A had gotten leaked and like Vespertine, I, I think is a similar situation where that album came out around the same time where it was like leaked uh, and then I think it was released early. Um, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure of that, but that that did happen. That started happening around the same time. So I, I think mm-hmm. the the streaming was partly a mechanism for that because they hadn't, the, you know, they didn't have a label anytime soon that they had found. So they're like, well, we'll just put this on streaming so that you know people have a way to like listen to this officially on our website. And of course, it's 2001, so the quality of streaming was lower, and they were streaming it, it was, off their website. And this is before YouTube or any you know kind of. It was like an embedded media player link. Yes, um, and, and like it cannot be stressed enough. Streaming was like not really a thing. <laughs> yes, this is actually quite ahead of its time. Um, yeah, like sometimes you would get like like an embedded link on an HTML site, but for the most part, Napster had like come and gone by that point. But that wasn't streaming; that was downloading files to your computer. Um, so it was a very, it was notable in a lot of ways. I think for being kind of a a weird you know y2k era innovation well speaking of that speaking of y2k era innovations i i think one of the things that we'll probably revisit multiple times on this podcast is there was like and and this was very apparent to me because when i first got into let's say indie music uh and started to be really conscious of it of as a thing it was around 1999 2000 um because i had an older brother who was introducing me to a lot of stuff um so and like you know i had heard uh okay computer and kid a and you know uh i had heard the soft bulletin by the flaming lips and there were other albums around the time like moon in antarctica by um modest mouse Mm -hmm. or 
Uh, there's a few others, like, uh, I guess Vespertine by Bjork. Other albums we're probably going to cover on here. <laughs> yeah, that were, like, highly, highly ambitious uh, for artists, you know, who are kind of kind of stepping outside their comfort, comfort zone and making these almost, like, you know, great existential statements or whatever. And I don't know if that was the... I, I think a lot of it was a reaction to the success of OK Computer. Um, for sure. But it, it had, like, sort of a, a broader effect to the point of, like, I think for a while there was this idea that indie music was the art music. Yes. Like, that is where you found, like, the the hip intellectual, like, artsy stuff. We'll talk about later how, like, around this time is when indie as a genre term became more of an aesthetic label than, like, actually describing the circumstances of the artists involved. And I think it, it, it a lot of it can be traced to this surge of ambition post okay computer that you're talking about mm-hmm. yeah and and it's a lot of like artists who had kind of been around kind of grappling with their careers and and also probably there is a you know a whole millennium kind of uh you know existential uh dread going on with the y2k stuff and you know just everything else that I think probably informs it. But it's just funny how quickly that culture changed. And I'm sure that'll be a, uh, that'll be a big thing that we talked about, but Wilco Yankee hotel Foxtrot is a really what I would consider kind of on the tail end of that, like micro trend of, you know, probably we'd say from like 97 at the beginning to like 2002 is probably where I would end it. But I don't know if you would agree with that, but yeah. Oh no, absolutely. But yeah, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is 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 in that mold. Uh, but the interesting thing about the album, or maybe the less interesting thing, depending on who you are, is that it it is pretty uh, downbeat in a lot of ways. There are certainly experimental aspects to the album, but it is for an album that kind of had so much rapturous critical acclaim for all these kind of crazy stories that were around this album. It's it's a pretty kind of low-key downbeat album in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah it's it's not even all that kind of out of pace for wilco but so you were sort of t- touching on this earlier with uh talking about your brother but like how did you sort of come to this album or where what was your like initial interactions like when you were first like you know exposed to this i think you should start because i think you probably have more of a relationship to wilco than i ever have Probably. Well, except so this was the first time I'd ever heard of them um, because this was it was like such a big deal. Like I'd never read about Wilco until like this out until they were dropped. Right. Um, And then all of a sudden they were on like the cover of Spin and Filter and shit. Um, And so that was back in the era, era where like if enough people talked about an album, I would just go buy it. Yeah, um, basically same here. Yeah, so I don't even think I'd listened to the streaming, uh, the streamed tracks yet. I just went out and got it. And, um, you know, it's not what I expected, but also, like, I was young enough that most albums I bought weren't what I expected them to be. Um, so I did just kind of go with it. And I think, you know, it was after I'd heard OK Computer, but, like, still before I'd heard, like, the flaming lips or or any like other more ambitious band um and or or even like um any of like jim o'rourke's stuff right that that this is sort of like um drawing from and i remember just thinking it was very pleasant 
<laughs> you know, um, O Inverted World had come out around the same time, and they they feel very much of a piece to me. Yeah, of like of they were like these kind of very pleasant, by the shin, by the shins by the shins. Yeah, these like very pleasant, low key indie rock albums. You know, I I eventually like later in life I've come to love this album a lot more. Um, when would you say a... you started? You, when would you say it sort of clicked for you? Literally, like a couple years ago, when like in my old podcast we decided to cover Wilco, so I heard it again. Oh, interesting. Okay, so so yeah. maybe because I knew I felt like I knew a lot of people who were my my uh, senior year roommate in college, uh, who was kind of like a you know aspiring music critic who unfortunately is no longer with us like he would talk about wilco all the time well specifically this album and he played me some songs and stuff but i was just kind of like i i guess i was kind of cool on it like i was kind of like i guess you know i i didn't really because i got the impression i think I had downloaded uh, Jesus, etc., like which is probably one or two of the most you know famous song on this album, right? A- and um, I was like, well, this is pleasant enough, but it sounded a little bit too like adult to me, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I like uh, I wanted stuff that was kind of like weird or out of the and like I think that is one of the most like straightforward songs. I mean the arrangement is very good, et cetera, et cetera. I get it, but like um, so I I just never really thought to like follow up on on their music. Um, and then you know he played me a. We were talking about my friend. We were talking about it in the context of he was like, well, if you like big star, um you know uh the song holocaust or kangaroo by big star from the, the album third um have right. you ever you've have you ever heard those I've, songs? No, I've heard those this is that's yeah. deeply overselling the uh um emotional depths of yankee hotel Fox yeah but he was talking about it in the context of like ashes of american flags and some of sure. the other tracks and i and I, I could definitely hear the influence and i was like okay yeah i see i, I kind of see what they're going for it's a little weirder than i thought uh, so and and then I think in 2018 I started to feel is when I started to first feel like nostalgia for the 2000s indie rock era and I was like you know what I'll go back and listen to this and then like the I have to say like I am trying to break your heart is a fucking good song it's still my it's favorite great. it's still my favorite Wilco song and that's like what got me into the rest of the album but it's still like the song that I listened to way more than the rest of the album I I literally um, when I first got the album for a long time I never made it past track one because like I am trying to break your heart is so good and camera is so fine that I was like oh I don't need to hear the rest of the album I just have the first song that's fine I should say like as you know we're we're going to be presenting I say I should I I want to say this because I listened I've listened to plenty of music podcasts where they reviewed stuff and they've been dismissive on some of my favorite tracks and I've been like you know so we're probably going to I'm going to try to avoid that but we probably are going to uh stomp over some of people's favorite things because you know Wilco does have a lot of fans um and you know I do generally i'm a little cool on this album but i do generally consider myself a fan of it but uh but yeah we should we should we should uh preface with that i guess oh for sure and i should say there's not a song in here i dislike really and in general i 
what I'm talking about now is sort of my opinions on it at the time when I was a contrarian little shit mm-hmm. and decided I like Ghost is Born a lot better. Um, and not my opinions now, I think, are a lot more positive um, coming back to it. A lot of it, and, and we'll get into this, I think a lot of like why I was cool on it initially is because it was sold as something it's not, which is like it was yes. sold at the time as this like extremely alien, weird, ambitious, like too already for a major label kind of album um when it's sort of at its core kind of an esoterically arranged art pop album yeah and i mean i mean this is a we'll get into it this is a complaint that i have with with wilco is that and i don't want to be a hack for 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 you know using the dad rock terminology but it's hard to avoid and there is just a general kind of like like plodding mid-tempo straight ahead kind of country rock Tom Petty thing that I like notice is kind of the default mode of a lot of their songs and it's like sometimes you know they get outside that and do something really cool to me but that feels like a default mode that that I just have trouble with if that makes sense no for sure it's funny because I think Wilco is very much considered dad rock now but they've in a way always been dad rock even when they were very young and it's just a role they grew into you know like even back in uncle tupelo like the whole kind of joke of uncle uncle tupelo was that these two punk rock kids were playing you know genteel country songs oh and they and you know he never stopped like he's always been kind of dad rocky yeah speaking of which uh wilco you know as a as a band originally formed as this band uncle tupelo which was kind of like alt country um with the guy who later uh went on to form the band sunvolt um yeah jay farrar jay farrar yeah um uh, and then jeff tweedy does not get along with jays of any kind yeah <laughs> yeah exactly um and um so yeah, like, and then you know, Wilco had several albums. Uh, they got signed to Reprise and um, and and Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I think is their fourth album. Uh yeah, so yeah. It's A.M. Album. being there, which was a double album for some reason. Uh, Summer Teeth and then Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and none of those like first three albums were like. And I, you know, when we talk about what happened with the label later, it's important to remember none of those first three albums were like hits, critically or commercially. You know, Summer Teeth got some like, um, you know, good reviews, but you know, none of them got like huge. Like at, at the yeah. time, Wilco was still considered to be coasting off the success of Uncle Tupelo. Yeah, well, and and uh, Summer Teeth is interesting because I I think it also was the other Wilco album I'd see show up on like best of lists. Like I think Pitchfork had it on their you know best of the '90s list ranked very prominently. Um, right. But it, it it's just funny to me because that album feels like they're trying to do. I mean, like you know, like it it does feel very okay computer esque in the way that they're. But they're it feels like they're trying to do pop songs but then put some weird production over it. But it's just funny to me that there are like, you know, uh, albums that are less pop were, uh, or a little bit less pop were a little bit more successful. Right. It's, it's, you know, good in a lot of ways, like good for Wilco for finally getting like some kind of recognition for their very likable music. Uh, do we want to then like get into, start talking about like how this album kind of came about yes 
Um, so yeah, if you do, you want to start? Uh, you you I think did did all the reading. So if there's any like <laughs> okay elucidations there, maybe to start there. Okay, just... so so I will say that we watched the documentary. I am trying to break mm-hmm. your heart. We just found it on YouTube by someone who mistitled the name of the, the director. It says uh, a film about Wilco by Same Jones. <laughs> Incredible. I don't uh, know how you that's misspell how you dodge the box. Sam. I don't know how you misspell <laughs> Sam. Yeah, maybe except the the entire movie is uh is, <laughs> right. is titled correctly um uh, this documentary i don't know <laughs> it's like it's weird because i think it was unusual for the time to have a documentary about a band of this level and i think maybe uh having like kind of artsier indie band indie bands have some kind of document of their existence was maybe an inherently exciting or unusual thing because there is a bit of like a a sense of like <laughs> there's a weird combination of them like you know being like oh we're so cool look at what well, look it's you know we're expanding the boundaries and we're just like in a free mode or whatever but they look so fucking miserable <laughs> yeah you it, it feels like a combination of you know, an old style like '70s album documentary where there's like they're trying to find the legend of the creation of this album, and a response to the the Radiohead doc meeting people is easy, which is just if you've ever seen it, it's just like 70 minutes of Tom York looking sad. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, that's what this is. But they like try to shape it into a narrative, and it just never quite works. I I don't know. It's an interesting document that I'm glad that exists, but at the same time, it. In, in some ways, it doesn't really elucidate things. Um, I'm, it's interesting in a pretty quotidian way. Like, it's it's a it's a good showcase of how boring it is to be a professional musician. Um, like, how petty the mixing arguments are. Like, how much time is spent, you know, bored in rooms with people you don't want to talk to. Um, like... In that way, it's kind of nice in that it deflates whatever legend might be around this album and that like, no, it's just a bunch of neurotic guys, um, you know, being anxious in a room. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the just performances the, are good. And the pure, pure Midwestern passive aggression, just energy flowing deep <laughs> throughout yeah. the movie. Absolutely incredible. You can kind of tell that like they had started filming it, hoping it would become something and then realized at the end they did not have the footage to make it as cohesive as they would like. Yeah, so so what happened was um, they were working on, uh, so they are working on this album, and, you know, they're trying to do something a little bit more experimental and usual with this album, so they had bought, like, a loft in Chicago where Wilco is from, um, the city of Chicago, which you live in. And yes. Where Pitchfork is also originally from, as I'm sure many people know. Um, but yeah, and so they were working on this, and they had a lot of tension with their drummer. Uh, uh, what's his name? Jeff Coomer was it? Are you talking about? Oh, oh yeah, the old drummer Jeff. Yeah, Coomer. Um, and uh, Ken Coomer, sorry. And uh, he just was not like you know he just did not sort of mesh well with the band's style. He just kind of was... Because what they would do is they just do takes of the song over and over and over again. And because they were trying to get something new to come out of it, and I think there's just this general sense of, like, that Jeff Tweedy is aware that a lot of his songs just come out as these, like, 
kind of mid uh, country folk songs. So he's trying to right. kind of break that uh, tendency. So they're they're really just recording songs over and over again, trying to figure out what to do with them. And um, I think that th- that guy just got frustrated, and um, he. <laughs> He had been with the band from the beginning, and apparently Jeff Jeff Tweedy had, uh, I think, their manager call him and say that you're fired from the band. Right. <laughs> he didn't even call him directly. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so that was uh, really bad for the band, and they had no idea what was going on. And, and so Jeff ended up hiring uh, this guy, Glenn, uh, Kotchke, who he had uh, met from doing this project with him, with Glenn and Jim O'Rourke, that was called um, Loose Fur. Loose Fur, yeah. And so uh, they had already worked on, you know, they had already recorded a lot of the album. And uh, and then when Glenn came in is when they started filming the documentary. So we only see part of the making of the album in the documentary. Um and the documentary like weirdly cuts like a lot, you know, it'll show like, uh, it shows like a live show, a solo show that Jeff Tweedy does with a very bizarre uh, Fred Armisen bit in it. Apparently Fred Armisen oh was an active comedian then and he he's doing like weird racial trope voice. I know was, he's I like- I think he was on SNL then. <laughs> no, he it was before he was on SNL, I think. Oh God. Um, I, I, I know like Fred Armisen is like, has family from South America or whatever. So, but yeah, he was doing like weird, you know, Latin voice. Um, and it, it was just a very odd bit. Cause it doesn't really explain who Fred Armisen is. He's just doing a bit the entire time in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's an interesting, uh, again, something we might talk about the intersection between like comedy and uh, alt comedy of the two thousands and indie music was just like, so deep. Um, and this is an, another like, uh, example of that but um yeah come back when we do an episode on a eugene Mirman album or something <laughs> god i didn't even know he released uh yeah or or Patton yeah. oswald or somebody he, he re- they released albums on sub pop <laughs> oh right oh my god okay anyway um <laughs> right anyways uh and then you know eventually they they finished the album and they started mixing the album in um and the the band the you know, this was kind of produced by the band, like Wilco is credited as the producer, but Jay mm-hmm. Bennett, um, who had joined the band around the era of, of being there, who's sort of a multi-instrumentalist type, um, was kind of the one who was kind of uh, de facto taking control of the mixing. And there was a lot of weird tension there. And I don't know, this guy is probably the most interesting and bizarre character of of Wilco in this entire movie, and I still don't know what to think about him. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, he he's incredibly neurotic. You can you can tell that like he kind of hates dealing with somebody as passive aggressive as Jeff because that's just not the way he operates. But what I love is kind of the reason why he's so interesting in the documentary is just, is because he's forthright. <laughs> about shit yeah well he's the one who says like you know oh yeah we you know we need to start fading up all this noise in the background because without it these are just folk songs yeah oh oh, yeah oh yeah he's he has this quote i think i wrote it down here um he's like a lot of times when you're playing and you don't have any sonic landscape behind you everything turns into a folk song 
Right. <laughs> so that, that kind of underlies my... Actually, um, so I also read parts of this book called um, Learning How to Die by Greg Cott, uh, which has a couple chapters about uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I guess it went a little bit overboard on this, but... Um, I wanted to know a little bit more because the the documentary kind of let me left me a little confused about the dynamics between Jeff and um, and Jay, because mm-hmm. um, like they had co-written like Jay had co-written most of the songs on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and right. was kind of like taking on a second second man role or whatever, um, but. The the documentary sort of left me confused as to whether he was kind of like the experimental guy who wanted to push things in that direction or like kind of like a pop guy because, you know, he was the one who was like the multi-instrumentalist who was kind of trying to add all this, you know, he has he all these weird esoteric instruments and just kind of like layering stuff. So I was like, oh, he's the experimental guy. But no, actually, he's kind of the, the pop guy. <laughs> like, right. Um, and like he was kind of mad that uh jeff was kind of trying to take it in a certain direction and i don't know jeff tweedy is a very like passive aggressive withdrawn (laughs) figure um and i didn't have a good sense of him in the movie but like after reading the chapters of the book i had a more positive sense of him and a less positive sense of jay so um i guess like uh anyway that that makes things there's a scene in the movie where they're trying to do this the transition between um uh, ashes or uh, ashes of american flags that song and heavy metal drummer and like right. they're bickering and it's just the stupidest fucking argument and then it's extremely it's it's it literally they're arguing over like where to do the cut like where to do like the mixing for the song is it before the cut or after the cut and it doesn't matter <laughs> Well, yeah, and, like, and, and Jeff, you can tell he's just getting, like, he's getting a mic. Like, at some point, he, like, leaves and vomits. Like, and, right, because he's, he's getting so, a migraine. Yeah, because he's getting a migraine. And, like, um, it is weird because it's, like, Jay seems very intent on, like, trying to get the, the last word. Like, he's a, just a very, like, weirdly anxious presence in addition to his, like, weird white guy dreads <laughs> early right. in the... He's just a, a very strange, like, anxious presence. And um, just judging by the book, it seemed like he was uh, he was not getting along with the band. Um, I the, There's a passage um, where they... So, so basically, eventually, what happened is that was not working. So they were just like... Um, and, you know, they were spending a lot of time and money in the studio trying to mix this album. So mm-hmm. Jeff got Jim O'Rourke to come in, um, Chicago indie musician jim o'rourke to come in and mix uh the first song i am trying to break your heart because they were really having trouble with how to put that song together um and we can talk about the construction of that song in a second but um apparently there's a quote from o'rourke where he said um O'Rourke was talking about Jay Bennett and like him, him kind of still trying to, you know, be an influencer in, in the process of like what gets put in and what gets not. Cause again, like they recorded like bi- tons and tons of takes of these songs. They didn't know what they were going to do with it. And then they were just trying to cobble it together. Um, so they had just it, kind of an overwhelming workload and kind of lost all perspective on the album. So, um, but yeah, uh, Jim O'Rourke was talking about Jay Bennett. He's like, 
uh, talking about Jay Bennett's involvement with the process, and he was like, "It's less. It was less about being helpful and more about being paranoid. He wanted to make sure <laughs> that he would be represented on every tra- track, regardless of whether it was needed musically or not." O'Rourke right. says, "I can understand why people close to him were getting fed up." So yeah, eventually he was fired. Uh, shortly after he was fired from the band. It's funny though, like thinking about how again it sounds ungr- aggressively unpleasant to work with Jay. Uh, and it looks aggressively unpleasant, but at the same time, you know, you can. There's an interesting contrast between like you can hear the band with Jay on like Summer Teeth and Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and then after that, you know, they replace him with a different weirdo. Like first it's Jim O'Rourke, and then it's Nels Klein, you know, a different ambitious multi instrumentalist weirdo. Um, but you get the impression that Nels Klein is probably just like more willing to take direction because he has solo projects of his own to get his yayas out. And mm. those albums are pretty boring. Like, or at the very least, their arrangements aren't doing anything as interesting as the arrangements on Summer Teeth or Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And it makes you wonder, like, if it's a band that needs some conflict or pushback in it to yeah. get out of whatever zones they find themselves. It's difficult because, like... <laughs> You know, I would normally, you know, if the situation is, the dynamic in the band is very weird in this documentary and very, like, uncomfortable to me. Yeah. For sure. um, yeah. And it, it, it's also funny because I, I think, um, you know, there's this perception of indie bands, um, you know, in in contrast to, like, mainstream artists, you know, rock star. You know, there's so many, like, rock star documentaries where it's just guys making assholes of themselves. You know, it's right. like some big ass you know some big ego you know like metallica some kind of monster kind of oh god yeah yeah (laughs) um but um and and, but the archetype for indie rock is generally like you it's it's like aspirational and like you want to be fugazi you want to be um the Minutemen, you want to be rem you know these well-adjusted people who sort of you know are low-key and and kind of uh, you know, do their thing and, you know, are, are more like about like living their principles and all the kind of, you know, all that kind of indie spirit. And it's just funny because like, you know, Wilco is like on the surface, that kind of band, but actually they are like totally dysfunctional. Yes. And like, it seems like Jeff Tweedy is at a constant problem with like clashing with other people. You know, it's, it's, it's weird. Cause like they're from their music, you, you would think it would, would, it would indicate that they're not like this tempestuous, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, band with all these conflicts, but you know, that's not really the case. Yeah. And it, it's, I think it's something that we would find out about a lot of indie bands going forward as like, yes, drama came out, but, but I don't you're know if right, you've ever seen, I don't know if okay. you've ever seen the Pixies documentary. Oh yeah. Oh God, Like, yeah. holy I, I, crap. I, woof. Woof. Anyway. Um, and, and I think, and, and you know, something I was thinking about like watching the documentary and looking at this is like the idea that in most creative pursuits that involve a group, usually there's like a director, somebody is a director. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not the case in music or bands, you know, like you said, everybody wants to be REM, like where everybody's an equal member of the band and so on and so forth. And I feel like so much band dysfunction comes out of that because even though that's what they say they want to be, there's always somebody who's like, oh, but I am 
the guy, the director I am leading. The yeah. Band, you know? Well, and I but think because was... they don't make it official, uh, official, they just like fight about that kind of power struggle all the time. Yeah. And I think it was pretty clear, like after this album came out that that guy was, and would be, you know, Jeff Tweedy. Right. Exactly. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a little depressing, but, but yeah. Okay. So let's start with, uh, the first song. If you would, if you, if you want, I would love, I would love to get started on the first track. I love this song. Let's forget about the tongue-tied lightning that's undressed just like cross-eyed strangers. This is not a joke, so please stop smiling. Who was I thinking when I said it didn't hurt? I am trying to break your heart. Uh, is is this the Wilco song? Actually, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. And this is a serious question. Would you consider yourself an American aquarium drinker? <laughs> you know, as often as I have assassined down the avenue, um, I don't know if I share that particular patriotic, patriotic <laughs> job. No. Yeah. Actually, this album's like uh, the themes around America seem kind of half baked to me. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I I'm in a place where I I I don't like to think about America as an entity in that way anymore. Right. But. I mean, it feels like it, for Wilco, as you know, pre nine eleven, this would feel like a pretty natural evolution of their sound, like. They're into both like Americana and like the grim progress of urbanization and an empire, um, you know, in a similar way that like Modest Mouse were, although not as good. But I agree. I mean, they don't have anything political to say, right? Like it's in the end, if when any of these songs hit, it's not because of its, you know, pointed commentary. It's because it's hitting at, you know, something more like, personal and emotional that that resonates well yeah and i i mean i don't think that they were unusual in that way i think it was much more unusual for artists to be political at that point in time absolutely um but it is funny that i think it registered as very political because it was post 9-11 um you know in the same way that like uh, i remember laurie anderson's like has a live performance of oh superman that got a lot of like suffused meaning because of when it came out um, so even though like absolutely was not made with nine eleven in mind, uh, unless you're a truther, um, it, it had like a mourn, a mourning of a lost innocence kind of vibe to it. Yes. Although I think that's kind of like a weird, I, I mean, I get that. I think that's kind of like a weird misnomer misunderstanding of the does that make sense like i i don't know if i I, think it absolutely is i don't i don't think that's intentional at all yeah because i i i can sense that for for some things that were like pre or you know immediately around that era but i don't really feel that for this album but there is a general sense especially in this first song i am trying to break your heart which you know like i said they had tons of trouble mixing this song this was the the one song i think it's written just solo by it's it's just Jeff Tweedy's song 
and it was just like six verses like over and over again there's no real chorus except for him the the end part where he says i am trying to break your heart and they were just struggling so much with this song and apparently like un- under understandably because like the final arrangement there's like 40 50 goddamn tracks that they're mixing together <laughs> Yes, and this is the one that they had Jim O'Rourke come in, and uh, this is interesting. This says because um, o- O'Rourke has this uh, reputation for being kind of like an art guy, um, yeah. and I think he was in Sonic even... Youth at the time. Oh, he was. Oh, I didn't yeah. even know that. That was a uh, like right around Murray Street, another album that got a lot of nine eleven meaning attached to it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he was in the band. Um, I don't know if he was touring with them, but he was recording with them. Okay, but yeah, like he was a big like you know it's a big big name in around that space around that time and he even says in the documentary he's like he's he's like i might get you fired from your label you know i might get you dropped from your label um because he had this reputation of being um kind of the the art guy but um this is from the book uh again the name of the book is learning how to die by uh, glenn cott uh or greg cott sorry it says contrary to popular perception o'rourke did didn't bring out the noisier elements on in Foxtrot. Instead, he stripped away much of the abrasiveness to bring out melodies underneath and heighten the drama. With I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, he added a few Serge Gainsborough-like uh, keyboard parts that gave the song a musical spine. <laughs> That makes me think that like the organ at the beginning is him because the very first thing that you hear in the track is like an organ. It's, it sounds like an organ switching on, you know. And mm-hmm. then you have the 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 drum track that feels like it's switching on. It's like it's like a tape loop engaging, yeah, yeah. Which is a really great you know way to start the album. It's just like starts it out, but it kind of has. There's a weird ramshackle quality to this song. I think just as it feels mechanical and like the most like like chitty chitty bang bang sense of the word like this is a scrap together machine like breathing itself to life kind of deal yeah but yeah and then it says um and then it says he then wove kotchkes glenn kotchkes who's the drummer five separate drums and percussion lines through the arrangement so there were five separate drum <laughs> tracks it's like it's stuff like that it's like oh yeah of course you didn't know what you were doing you're just doing how why would you end up with five separate drum tracks you know it's because you don't know what's worth keeping <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that's why you have a Jim O'Rourke come in, and then he just faded them in and out and gave gave them the sense of a motion uh, that uh, you know it it couldn't have done on its own. And then um, it says once he got done, the sound had more from an unfocused sound effects display to a coherent musical journey. And I think uh, you really see that like towards the end, like I mean, if you really listen closely to the track, there are a bunch of different things that come in and out. There's like places where it's just like you can hear like the i don't know it's like a vibra slap or whatever that sound is like the you know like and there's like a tinkling piano i think there's like a prepared piano in it there's some prepared Uh, piano there i think there's literally an alarm clock oh yeah yeah um and you see this like in the documentary where they're sort of filming themselves just hitting random things Mm -hmm. and like that this is the song where where that really like that image of them doing that actually comes to fruition and it makes sense and you can actually i feel like you can actually really hear that in the song in my opinion it's definitely at its most naked here because of like 
the way it all shifts in and out. And and I think it's as good a an opening mission statement for the album already because like as we've sort of been gesturing towards this whole time and I think I think to me the thesis statement of this album is like this is an object lesson in how important arrangement is to music because the songs at the core of these are usually so simple and ostensibly pretty dull like if Jim if Jeff Tweedy were to play all these solo on acoustic guitar most of them wouldn't work um I mean they, they'd be boring <laughs> yeah. they'd be boring exactly but the the way they're arranged brings so much like texture and movement that isn't in the song structure it's it just it's in how the instruments come in and out and it's kind of like an amazing display of how much that can do for a song you know i think the best songs on here are the songs with like the most ambitious arrangements to them yeah, absolutely. But I think that is that is my problem with the kind of the limits of Wilco. Like if you're thinking about in the context of like, you know, an album like OK Computer or Kid A, there are so many different musical styles and approaches on those kinds of albums. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeff is fundamentally like a country folk songwriter who writes similar types of songs. He It feels like he has two modes, which is like the subdued kind of slow, sadder song and the mid-tempo one. <laughs> Yeah, I, there's like, there's one song on here that I feel like breaks that mold and we'll get to it. Okay. But for the most part, like, yeah, absolutely. And it's why like Wilco's become sort of a generic dad rock institution at this point. They've released, what, six albums since then. And like, I can think of one good one. <laughs> <laughs> like you know I don't want to be too dismissive because I haven't heard them I will say I did listen to because you encouraged me to I did listen to some of Ghost uh, Ghost is Born and there were some tracks I didn't like on it but there were some that I really liked on that one so that that's I, sort of where I'm at too like I think Ghost is Born is like half a really great album yeah I just didn't like there were a few there were a few like <laughs> there were a few like Paul McCartney-esque like do-do-do kind oh, of wow. tracks yeah, Hummingbird is, is is absolutely like a jaunty public. But I mean, like you said, it, it speaks to sort of a limited, almost like a classicism to Jeff Tweedy's songwriting. Because it's not like, for the most part, it's not like the songwriting is bad. Um, it's just that it's fairly samey. Yeah, um, it 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 it's within a particular uh, it's within a particular tradition or framework, and if like if that is the type of music that you like and you just want it to be taken a little further, then Wilco is your band, you know. Yeah, and I think when it's, I think what's cool is with this album with Summer Teeth, there's, it's proof for of how far you could take these things while still like keeping some essential essence of them. Like, you know, there are some decisions and arrangements here and i'm trying to break your heart is a really good example of this that like it's 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 kind of blowing out the edges of what is possible in a pretty simple pop song in a way that like i think a lot of people claim to be doing at the time but here actually feels like interesting and good mm-hmm. and that's partly because of all the musical elements i mean at the end of the song he sings the the you know the verse an octave up and he sounds like most of the song he sounds kind of like you know downbeat like he's like he's almost mumbling um he's pretty downbeat like and singing in a lot of the and i i thought that was just his voice and then i listened to some of his other albums and he is more a a little bit more of a dynamic singer on on some of the other albums so like a lot of these songs have pretty downbeat vocals Mm -hmm. um 
so I mean I, I have more respect for Jeff <laughs> Jeff Tweedy now after reading this book and listening to some other stuff and I realized that like Wilco is or at least for a period was the kind of that band that tried to uh, Americanize some of the more experimental uh, things that were going on in you know like with indie bands with like some, something like Radiohead you know OK Computer today but there's also this element of like kind of wanting to have your cake and eat it too of like well we're going to be this authentic indie band that's speaking to this authentic tradition that still sounds kind of like 70s rock or whatever right but we're also going to throw in some experimental stuff and I'm in a reference like kraut rock and you know all this other kind of stuff and it just the like the idea that they're talking about like noisy soundscapes but also being like oh yeah we're also trying to bring in like you know these Serge Gainsberger Van Dyke Parks flourishes as like you know these very classic 70s singer songwriter types I think yeah. this speaks that duality pretty well well speaking of which um, Camera is the next song and mm-hmm. this song is like is <sighs> Okay. To me, it's the definition of mid. I actually kind of like the song. Um, I think the 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 melody is okay, but it, for me, what really makes the song is the uh, the kind of uh, subtle organ synth pad sounds. And I don't know if those were Jim Moore work or somebody else, but the ones that are like. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, to me, this feels like this is maybe another way of saying it's the definition of mid. This feels like the definition of a track two, mm-hmm. right? Like you've just done your ambitious opening statement, and here is a song that's fine um, to kind of like bring you down a bit and get you ready for the rest of the album. Um, I think the big, the biggest thing, damning camera for me, is that I think pot kettle black does the same thing a little bit better um hmm. like this kind of shuffling like acoustic forward mid-tempo pop song yeah i i, I think there are some things that that like eventually won me over to this song i think mm-hmm. the line where he says phone phone my family tell them i'm lost on the yeah. pavement again or something like that on the sidewalk on the, yeah which is yeah. hilarious i i and here's the thing I, I I feel like I, I'm being dismissive of camera. I love camera. I like camera more than some of the other songs on here. Um, it's just, it's it's an interesting thing to have in between, I would argue, two of the most experimental songs on the album. Well, yeah, and the, the, the vocal performances are pretty sleepy, so it's not like, um, I don't know, it doesn't feel like he's giving you much uh, to, to go with. on. Yeah, I, like Again, if you compare this to Tom York or somebody who's like, and I, I don't want to, but like everyone was comparing uh, Wilco to, I mean, like this was a common thing in the press that like, oh, Wilco is America's Radiohead, you know? Well, um, even like compared to like Modest Mouse, who is the other like American Radiohead of the time with Moon and Antarctica, yeah. like they're much more dynamic singers. <laughs> yeah. The performances are more, di- yeah. And in this, he just kind of like, I think that's the, that's the problem that I have with cameras. Like it, there's a kind of a weird position in between is this like a rocker or is this like a, a more subdued song and it kind of doesn't I don't know it's just the few elements in the arrangement that really make it um, 
and and like the when they when they you know when they repeat the line when they're like tell them i'm lost you know that goes in my heart tell them i'm lost like that part like that that's what makes that song click for me um what what was it about the song that you just didn't like when you first heard the album um i you know i think what it was is like it's because the album was sold as so experimental and the first song is so experimental and interesting and the second song is just a wilco song Mm-hmm. I think that was it. Like I heard it, I was like, "Oh, this sounds like Counting Crows or something." And it's like there's something about it that, and I, you know, what I also I I imagine probably happened when I was younger is then after that is Radio Cure, which like I feel like younger me would have gotten bored with, mm. um, and just turned off. Um, so it's probably a combination of the two. Yeah, that is that is um, one of my favorite songs on the album too. Probably like my third favorite song on the album. Um, Radio Cure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now I love Radio Cure. Cheer up, honey, Yeah, I just I wrote down. Uh, I'm trying not to use the word vibes lately. Like my Twitter is a uh, my, my we Twitter might as brand well, is. We might as well date ourselves now as we're being you know anti nostalgic. <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah, I wrote down uh, depression vibes. On, on, <laughs> I mean, this has kind of like a this this one also really makes me think of uh, third sister lovers like the big star because it it really the the his performance is really kind of like again it's like low-key but it's kind of weird it's a little weirder and it's like you know and he's saying like there's something wrong with me like Mm -hmm. as and it's a perfect example of like the music actually like echoing what is going on in the lyrics yeah it feels like unanchored right it's one of the few songs on here i feel like that allows itself to not be anchored to a classical song structure you know the chords seem to just kind of drift in and out of each other they don't they feel less like a progression and more like uh ambient scene setting yeah that he's I mean, just kind of moaning his way through which is like i think definitely speaking of the third sister lovers vibes were like on the slower songs there the reverb is so thick that the chords are almost besides the point to like the mood mm-hmm. um and i feel like this is definitely getting into that level of like you know, K-hole depression, everything's <laughs> slow and dark and nonsensical. Although, I mean, if you're comparing this to, like, again, like, um, excuse me, Kid A or, um, I was saying excuse me because I burped, <laughs> um, Kid A or um, Moon in Antarctica, there's way less reverb on this album. It's it's pretty dry album. It's extremely, like, this is maybe a note to get into later. I feel like this is, like, the beginning of what I think came to be a pretty like pitchfork era production style of being very dry, mm-hmm. crisp and digital. Uh, Which I, I think, I think is actually, I think this album sounds great. Um, oh, me too. I think it's, it's delightful. Um, it says something that they have so much material going on and it doesn't sound muddy and it doesn't sound like claustrophobic or like overdone. Well, again, cause Jim O'Rourke cut out apparently like 80% of the things that they recorded. That's fair. Yeah. Um, 
I think Radio Cure, I, I, what I really love about Radio Cure is the way too that like the very normal Wilco pretty melody floats out of it and then takes over the song. Like it does have a sense of progression. Yeah, there's like a xylophone or like a, you know, some, I don't know if it's like a xylophone. It's like but bells, I think. Or Yeah. And he's saying distance has no way of making love understandable. It just mm-hmm. repeats that. But that like section is kind of different from the rest of the song. has no way making love understandable yeah it's like you're you're emerging from clouds into something sort of clear and bright and then falling back into it again i don't know I, it's the most experimental in terms of song structure that i that besides maybe i'm trying to break your heart that um jeff tweedy ever has ever gotten <laughs> and it's really cool yeah actually i i do think this is that's kind of the song that's kind of the hidden the song that got me into the album as a whole and like made me interested in around 2018 or whenever it was when i um because yeah i like rediscovered this album in 2018 and and got into it this that was really the song that kind of unlocked uh things for me um i think i think that that last section it is like I don't know. It's not. It's not amazing, but it, but it it kind of like um, it contrasts well. It contrasts well, and then it kind of fades back into the depression vibes, like at right. the end. So it's it's kind of a it's it's kind of a nice package uh, arrangement yeah. wise. I think I also love the way the guitar is strummed. Feels like kind of drunken stumbling. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's something in the performance that really feels kind of human and evocative it's it's like it's it's uh loose it's like uh i don't i can't think of the a sort of a rhythmic sort of yeah a little bit yeah loose rubato almost yeah rubato to be, yeah to be um, an asshole yes <laughs> uh okay so the next song is war on war and i want to know what you think of the song before man so war on war uh i believe I, I don't there weren't singles to this i'm trying to remember why i heard war on war before i got the album this this apparently was the only single according to okay. wikipedia so yeah. it must have been, it was a single or something because i heard it before the album and i was like i don't i didn't get it I think it's fine. I this is the thing. At the wor- at its worst this album is fine. Um to me and War on War feels like camera with less to say. Well, yeah, it, I I mean I think I guess the phrase War on War is interesting. The way he repeats it though is just kind of I I I guess when I kind of like you know, slightly mock Wilco to a friends. I always am like, it's a war on war. It's a war on war. He just sings that like so many fucking times. It's like, come on. Yep. 
Um, but uh, there is that little bit of the, the mid-tempo ploddingness coming in that I don't like as much that just like, it's not really going anywhere melodically. But the thing is like, he's a good enough songwriter to where like, you know, when that ends, there is like a different section, but it, it is another thing where like the arrangements really help it work. Cause there's this high pitched, like, uh, I don't know, it's some kind of chime sound, uh, like that's very reverb that is kind of mm-hmm. like a sprinkly, like, you know, sound. Um, that just gives this like a nice pretty vibe but it's of course like everything in this album it's, it's subtle and, and you know like you don't notice it but it but it, it comes out it I don't know I don't know whether to attribute that to Jim O'Rourke but that's just the, the little magic of that, that that makes it work okay yeah I think it it's, I think it does speak to a certain you wouldn't get that instrument in there if you weren't being maximalist while recording and that instrument wouldn't stick out if you weren't being minimalist while editing, you know? Yeah. Like there's there's extremes you wouldn't find to put in if you weren't really throwing everything at the wall. Um, that said, I find the instrumental palette is also pretty similar to camera where it's like acoustic guitars and an upright piano. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, that's the other thing working against it for me. I kind of do confuse the two songs a little bit. Um, mm. I, I mean I do like the the general groove but yeah yeah it's just it just kind of I don't know it's a little too mid for 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 me and again I'd say this is like you know when I listen to the album I listen to the whole album so it's not like I I dislike there are a lot of really things that push it over the edge and like make it actually work in the context of this album but sure. it keep it keeps me from from being like oh fuck yeah war on war you know <laughs> it, it it works well in the context of the album because it's between two pretty cl- slow songs so it feels more up tempo than it actually is um and like when you between radio cure and jesus etc it's nice to have something simple short and not you know up up tempo yeah, well, speaking of Jesus, etc., is the next song, and that's probably one of their most well-known songs, I would say. It seems to be. I don't know what happened to make that the case. Um, I just think it's the string section. <laughs> I guess I will say the refrain it opens with by the string section, I think, is a really terrible. <laughs> Don't cry You can rely on me, honey You can combine anything you want I think the strings get better as it goes along, but like the do-da-da, da-da-da. Yeah, there's, I think it's a cello. Um, yeah, it's a, maybe a slightly out of tune. I, I don't know. I, I like it. It's 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 a little bit... Um, I don't know. I, 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 I like... I mean, I used to play cello, so it it feels chirpy in a way that doesn't fit the intro. Yeah, I, I will say that, like after that, I think the strings and the arrangement in general of this song is another case of like a really fascinating progression because you know it goes from strings to this sort of like palm muted mandolin plucking or pizzicato or whatever, right? To like a more staccato playing, like it's. It has a good sense of texture and pace. 
Yeah, I think the string arrangements are good, and I am like always a sucker for good string arrangements. Like a good string arrangement can totally make a song for me, and for I sure. think they're 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 definitely good. Um, I think I think this is one of his better songs, just in in general, in terms of. Uh, I I guess he co-wrote it with. Um, with uh, uh this was i think the last song written for the record according to the book mm-hmm. um and it was written like pretty shortly before uh jay got kicked out of the band and Amazing. it was co-written with him so um yeah jay would later like try to sue wilco and uh uh unfortunately he passed away in 2011 um of I an accidental that. overdose yeah i remember that case and then the the death and it, would, it being a huge bummer you know? yeah um I, yeah, we, should, I, we probably should have said that sooner, but it's a good context <laughs> to talk about as any. But yeah, Jesus, et cetera. I think it's just a good, um, like this is something that you could imagine being a more like, uh, you know, slightly more mainstream pop song. But it, it kind of has that 70s like elevated pop. I don't know. There's a lot of 70s uh, kind of like Steely Dan and also like you know where it's like it's pop music but it's like slightly elevated kind of thing going on right this it, not technically sophista pop but that's always what kind of comes to my mind as like the brill building thing yeah uh, jesus etc is the most sophista pop uh song on this <laughs> album definitely it's like it's the song of all of these songs that would probably get p- played in a starbucks at the time yeah and probably still is played in a starbucks <laughs> probably is but i i agree and i think also lyrically i feel like this and the next song I don't usually like Jeff Tweedy lyrically. I think he's usually kind of a nonsensical cut and paste guy. Uh, but this and Ashes of American Flags, I feel like have some of his best lyrical turns in them. Yeah. Um, says, uh, I like the, uh, what is it? You are right about the stars or something yeah, like that. Each one is a setting sun. Like, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And well, and then there's the famous. Tall buildings shake. Voices escape. Singing sad, sad songs. Chords strung down your cheeks, bitter melodies turning your orbit around. Voices wide, skyscrapers are scraping together. Your voice is smoking less cigarettes, but all you can get turning your orbit around. That is kind of the thing that people are like, oh, this is a reference to 9-11. I mean, presumably that's where the album art comes from is this song like this. The album art is is referencing this song because there is kind of like this, uh, uh, I don't know, like kitschy skyscraper, like kind of just a in feeling of instability or, or, or uncertainty, I guess. The thing about the Marina Towers is that the cover art of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is extremely misleading. Those buildings are dwarfed by skyscrapers all around them. Um, and then like a river flowing in front of them. There's not like a clear spot behind them unless you've got a real good angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it's a very Chicago kind of line. Um, what What is Chicago about it as, as a non-Chicagoan? I'm curious. There is, okay, there's a very surreal thing about the Chicago skyline to me, which is that you have this is probably true of new york too i've just never lived there uh where you have all these because of the lake you have all of these like tall skyscrapers that just stop Mm -hmm. um at this line at the shore and so like from a distance um there's something very stark about the way they go against the sky you know you can't see 
you know, there's this vast horizon and then there's just this like weird chunk of tall skyscrapers kind of like carving up against it. That um, makes sense. Cause I, I will say I used to visit Chicago as a kid cause I had family from there. So that was the first big city that I went to. And I mm-hmm. have nightmares about uh, <laughs> giant skyscrapers that are like, just stark like that so that oh, probably no. comes from the chicago's <laughs> I, I haven't had them lately but that probably comes from the chicago skyline because there there are a few like really identifiable buildings in chicago right. too like the sears tower and the the hancock building and stuff yeah it, it you know it's uh it feels like accurate to that experience i think also like god the slide guitar on that song on Jesus etc is like so good like I'm kind of like the way you are with string arrangements I'm kind of like I'm a slut for a slide guitar I think like, Jim O'Rourke played that um from from what it said in the book I'm pretty sure because he recorded keyboard parts he recorded I think he recorded that slide guitar it makes sense I think he did some slide guitar on like his solo album from a little bit before Eureka they're just gorgeous too um I'm also burping a lot, and I'm so sorry. Hopefully, it doesn't get. That's up. fine. <laughs> you know, uh, get you a girl who burps into the mic. Ashes of American Flags. I I see. You know, we're we're sharing notes. Um, I agree with you that it feels very. It feels the most big star to me. The cash machine is blue and green. And a small silver sphere I could spend three dollars And sixty-three cents And Diet Coca-Cola And Bullet Cigarettes Of all of these, like, the way it has, like, this sort of sharp lead guitar line kind of drenched in reverb Mm-hmm. Well, this is the song that my friend, uh, you know, my my friend from college, his name is Colin. He played for me. He's like, oh, you got to hear the, you got to hear the transition from this song to heavy heavy metal drummer, the <laughs> the source of the of the of the famous scene from the document. Right. I don't. He didn't reference the documentary, but he kept talking about that. He's like, oh, this transition though, you know, like he was so on, he was so into that transition. Um, and now and I we're get all it. trans. Look what happened. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like that was the that he was like so into that. But yeah, that's and and that was the kind of I was like, oh, okay, I see what you mean. This is kind of big star. Like I can I can hear that. Um, I didn't think much of it. I guess the ashes of American flag thing. I think it's another like, it's another kind of misnomer. It's it sounds deeper than it is. And to me, like in terms of you're if you're talking about it in the context of, and like one, of, I think the Pitchfork review kind of references it as it's like you know, like a, a kind of liberal lefty thing wanting, you know, hoping, wishing for a, a bygone America that no longer exists. I, I guess I can sort of understand that, but I, I think that's even projecting maybe a little into it. It's, it's um, projecting a lot into it. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes I, you need to project, but yeah. I, like totally. lyrically, it's a very like, it feels like a very like personal mundane scenery. Mm-hmm. Um. I will say, like, this is the song when I first, like, listened to the full album, like, as a teenager. This is, I think, the song that stood out the most to me. And I think it's because it feels the most, like, indie rock of the era with, like, you know, this, like, very distorted but isolated lead guitar line with the reverb and, like, um, 
the kind of weird gaps. There's something very angular about it that I feel felt like, oh, this 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 is like you know an Interpol thing or whatever. Uh, I can I, I can I can attach myself to that. Um, oh oh, I just found an interesting tidbit. Yeah, uh, what's up about the song? It says uh, it says on Genius, which I shouldn't trust, but apparently it's mentioned in the book that I was reading. I just missed this part. Um, that uh, Tweedy carried around uh, the book Tropic of Cancer by Henry Miller and Ashes of American Flags uh, paraphrases bits from the novel in the song um, and also I guess there's a reference to it in Poor Places as well so that might have been some of the inspiration so yeah I, I will say so I got for Christmas uh, Jeff Tweedy's book on how to write songs <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which I wish I had with me because its insights are entirely mundane and not useful um, <laughs> but that is like one of its tips is like yeah open a book and just start stealing stuff from it <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it, it can work <laughs> I, it, I I think it's lyrically one of his strongest songs so yeah and I'm not I'm not like a Henry Miller fan I will I, I will say the mood of this album we're saying it's not political per se but there is a and I, I think there's a <laughs> The name Jesus, etc., is a perfect example of this. Is like, uh, 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 it's like you're in a liminal space and unwilling to commit. Like, mm-hmm. it's like you can't. This is like a the the Gen X or self negating thing. Like the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the like I'm blank, but I'm blank. You know, mm-hmm. or like, you know, like a lot. Or there's a lot. There's people have documented like a lot of Gen Xer songs that say like I'm this, but I'm not that. You know, I'm that, but I'm not that. There are a lot of like a lot of Gen X sort of pop songs that are like that, and. And I feel like uh, this sort of has some of that energy of like the the Gen X are like self-negating kind of thing, if that makes sense. The giant shrug in the face of anything, yeah. Um, Yeah, I think for sure. I think there's like that sense of like not making a statement about America, but just being like, I'm an American shrug. And yeah, the the end of the song is kind of the the bit uh, that they're arguing over in in the documentary, and it's just a bunch of noise kind of comes out. And uh, I guess they were trying to argue over in the documentary, like whether to fade it into the next song or to just cut it off and then immediately jump to the next song, which I think is what Jeff Tweedy wanted. I think the the impression I got was that they were arguing over how to use the studio time. Like if they wanted to mix the outro coming out of Ashes or the out or the intro going into Heavy Metal Drummer, like they don't they didn't match up exactly like in terms of tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like, what are we spending our expensive mixing time on? Is like, and Jay is like, we're wasting, we're wasting time and money. Let me explain myself completely first. Yeah, let me let me waste time and money while we waste <laughs> time and money. Oh God, not to speak ill of the dead. Rest in peace. Like, yeah, brilliant. there is an element. Yeah, he's like, there's an element that I is a little uncomfortable with him, a little anxious. For for it, sure, and especially and it, like it's interesting because like he seems to be like an extremely good musician. <laughs> um, he's a he's an amazing musician, and like he was really screwed over by this. Like the documentary even shows like him playing alone in a club, like and acknowledges that like you have to start over now. 
Yeah, he was playing the Wilco song. Um, what was the name of that song? Uh, My Darling. Mm-hmm. That's off of um, what? Being there. Some summer teeth, I guess. Summer teeth. God, summer teeth has so many songs on it. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so there's an interesting transition. This is the thing that my friend tried to explain to me. It's like, because that kind of comes back, you know, with the last two songs. So it is kind of like the midpoint of the album or maybe slightly after the midpoint. It's about the midpoint of the album, like um, it, where the kind of noise kind of overtakes everything. And we see that again, you know, at the end. So there is like a narrative thematic theme. And just judging by what I've seen, you described in the book and of Jeff Tweedy, it's like clear that he was like kind of trying to go for this like narrative through line. And he saw the, the three tracks that were the main kind of thrust of it were, I am trying to break your heart ashes of American flags and the last song reservation. So you can think of this as like the kind of mid chapter point of the album, <laughs> which I think is kind of why, um, you know, well, why part of why this album was kind of speaked up you know talked up as it was because there is that kind of like you know uh lionization of a particular kind of album structuring that right uh, it was going into it actually there's an interesting quote about that um uh from the book i'm trying to think of okay uh um Oh my god, I, I scrolled away from it. Well, I'll find it in a second. It's a very classic rock way of looking at sequencing an album um, that does feel like it was making a comeback. Again, I think in response to um, OK Computer, which very much has like... Again, it's not like these are concept albums, but that they have a narrative pace to them or a sense of uni unification through them of like theme and uh, texture. Yeah. So, I, I mean, basically the, the summary is that... Uh, Jay Bennett was saying like um, he didn't really understand Jeff's fascination with the album and he thought that like Jeff was trying to sabotage his songs and he was more concerned about like pop songs and like there being good hooks and things like that that was basically the gist of it um, so it seems like that was a that that was more motivated for by Jeff Tweedy like the, having this be you know a coherent album structure in this particular way and and everything being kind of about fitting the mood of the album, which I, I you can really see with Ghost is Born too, so that kind of makes sense. Right, and it's, you know, a, it, you can also see it in comparison to Summer Teeth, which does kind of feel like a collection of songs, and it's a lot of songs that are catchy and, and hooky. Yeah, and a lot of the songs are poppier sounding mm -hmm. than they are in, in Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. So speaking of poppier sounding, it, it then immediately goes into Heavy Metal Drummer, which is probably the poppiest sounding album. Yeah, or, sorry, like, song. And... I think it's a delightful song. I think it's great. I miss the innocence I've known. Playing kiss colors, beautiful and stone. I miss the innocence I've known. Yeah, this was, I think, one of the first songs. I think I heard it after Jesus, etc. And I was a big fan of the song. I think it's it's silly. Like, the lyrics are about, you know, because he's, you know, he's talking from the perspective of, like, uh, an indie rock uh, band, but he's kind of talking about corny, heavy metal cover bands. And this experience of nostalgia for something that, you know, probably irritated the fuck out of you when you were a kid, but, like, now just seems... 
is literally uh, what we're doing in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now it just seems so quaint and and silly and, you know, the opposite of, you know, being a professional <laughs> musician who where there's a, a billion stakes and, you know, all these other things are on the line, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, you know, that's really what the song is about. And the drumming is so good on the song. <laughs> The drumming is still, I mean, the drumming is still good throughout the entire album. Like it's kind of an amazing shift from uh, Coomer to, to Glenn, uh, who's like a, and one of like the best drummers in, in, in music. Um, But it's also just like, I think it does a better job than like War on War of being kind of effervescent, you know, like it's not about anything big or serious, but it is joyful it's a joy that you can feel even if it's somewhat wistful um, yeah i mean i th- i think it's a little bit more of a, a, a quaint pop song that you know based on what i heard from summer tea that feels like there's a few more of those on that album for sure um but it it fits well in this album because it's in in the context of everything else it kind of stands out in a good way yeah and also i it, especially i think kind of like in the back half of the album where it becomes alternately very goofy or very very dour mm-hmm. yeah heavy metal drummer is great it's just it's just peppy fun yep and then and then we go uh, there isn't really much more to say about heavy metal drummer it's a great no. like pop song it's something you can totally listen to outside of the context of this album um and yeah, it's I've, it doesn't outstay its welcome either it feels like the natural a natural choice for a single yeah which they didn't pick which <laughs> they, they didn't picked. pick and i don't understand it yeah, they picked War on War instead of Jesus, etc. Heavy metal drummer, which makes no sense. But anyway, um, I am the man who loves you. Is next. I do not like this song. Yeah, it feels it feels pretty out of place. Um, it feels like a hang like a, a hangover from like being there um, when they were like trying to be a more straight ahead rock band. They do do the thing with a they tr- that that I've realized is a Wilco thing. It's like we're gonna try and fuck up the song in the middle and put some bizarre like uh gu- guitar so like um uh some or sorry um a ghost is born has a lot of that where it's just like mm-hmm. I'm just gonna fuck this up with this like crazy ass guitar solo. There's like a little bit of that in this song and also like there's like trumpets and stuff. But it just doesn't make it. It to me anyway. It doesn't make me like the song more. And also, anytime it's like I'm a man who loves a woman, you know, I'm I'm inherently turned off, <laughs> unless they sing it with like you know, in, with super pathos and power. It just doesn't. It doesn't come across to me, or at least some sense of irony. And this is neither. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's definitely it's not. It's probably my least favorite on the album. It feels like especially insubstantial it, it it feels like a bad take on what a summer teeth song could be um you know it's trying to reach for these sort of like 70s almost like soul pop vibes um and really like fumbles the ball well t- to me it just like jeff tweedy is not a singer who can like reach that like it just doesn't no, quite no. work I mean, and that, and then again, comes back to my my problem with, like, I I, I think it's really admirable, admirable, like what they're trying to do with, um, have this more, a little bit more straight ahead folk country songs, but to just fuck them up a little, you know, in different ways, but it it doesn't always work for me because I do think like you need to be a little bit more adventurous with the song structure 
consistently enough, you know, for it to kind of stand out and, and really come off as, is something that is like dynamic and interesting. And that's something that, you know, Radiohead or some, an artist like that does really well. And it's, I just don't get it so much with this. And I think that's the problem that I have with it. I, I know that like, I'm sure there's people who, who love this song and, uh, you know, would be upset at us, but, but yeah, this is the one that just, uh, I, again, like, because the, because I do like this album, uh, um, I'll still listen to it, but it's the, the one at the one song that I have skipped, uh, when I've, you know, listened to this whole album. Yeah. I don't have any particular fondness for it. Well, especially like I will say, cause heavy metal drummer is so good. And I, I really like pot kettle black. It feels like to me, the best version of that kind of breezy mid-tempo pop song on the album hmm well um, i i so with oh sorry i'll let you no, finish go ahead it. go ahead that's fine oh i was gonna say with pot kettle black it does have a good like guitar intro it goes like it has a part like that where it kind of like winds up but like i don't like the chorus as much it it feels a little bit reminiscent of camera to me um i don't know this is the song that i always would forget that existed on the album like i was like how does this song go so i I, I, yeah i think it's just being on the back half of the album and sounding and being kind of similarly mid-tempo to war on Warren camera like um i think yeah i had trouble with that but you know it's a perfectly fine song what is it you like particularly about the song one i think it's one of those things where like of those three probably one of them's gonna fall flat for you um, and I get that pot kettle black comes towards the end, but I think for me, there's an almost like, like early new order kind of post-punk rush to it. That I feel like makes it, I guess, crack through for me in a way that, like, you know, camera and war on war just feel kind of pleasant and ignorable. Um, Pot kettle black feels a bit more like energetic and like full throated and and what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, like with anything on this album, it comes down to subtle things. It comes down to like that guitar lead, you know, that like reverb guitar hook being a bit more sticky than the piano riff on camera it comes down to the drums being like a lot more hi-hat focused than they usually are you know it's like it's i think on the similar sounding songs and again this points to the importance of arrangement i think it does come down to like which subtle touches are the kind that work for you mm-hmm. you know in the same way that like the horns don't work for me on i'm the man who loves you they probably work for somebody um i, th- I think they're fine i think they they're an attempt to make the song be less of a mid-tempo rock. Actually, it's something. It's, there's something in the documentary about that where it's like, where Jay's like, "Why don't we just like bang out some more mid-tempo rockers?" And Jeff's like, "I don't want to do more mid-tempo rockers." And Jay's like, "Well, but those were really rocking." <laughs> you know? uh, I, I I wish I'm glad there are not more. Again, like you know, Summer Teeth is too long. <laughs> Being there is way too long. Like, yeah. Ugh, I I think some restraint is is valid. Um, it's funny because I think 
for me, the song I always forget is on here is Poor Places, even though the minute oh. it comes on, I'm like, oh, okay, yes, that song. That's my, that's my second favorite song on the album. I think it's great. I just, I, I don't know why it's the one I forget. I've just been broken, my heart is wrapped in ice. It's the it the the hook the the main hook the I think is a good hook uh the like um like the vocal hook of this song and I don't know like like the I don't I don't even know exactly what he means by poor places but there is the general sentiment of like and I mean this is probably will come up as a as a theme of our podcast in general like and I, I think this is also why Wilco is kind of you know an er indie band that was embraced is uh a lot of these bands were you know kind of about like celebrating the underdog Mm -hmm. um and and naming your song poor places and kind of singing about it kind of like you know brings that feeling of like there is an element of like you know sticking it to the man or something even in but you know usually it's in this elliptical symbolic ways right but in some ways the the band in it kind of embodies that because that's kind of what indie rock was about, and now mm-hmm. indie rock is just, is is not that at all. Like it has none of that energy anymore. I mean, there, I'm sure there are still some artists who do, but that is not like the main energy of indie rock. Indie rock is like considered complacent at NPR uh, establishment music in a lot of ways now. It's, it's I mean, mel- I think that's it's melancholy rich kids these days. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's pretty fair to say it doesn't have the same association with it. I think we can safely say that for sure. Um, but poor places is the kind of song that embodies, you know, what indie rock used to kind of be seen as, or you know, the the role that it occupied, even if it was only symbolic. Both just in terms of just the name and sentiment, but also in terms of like the musical approach, which this song, you know, this song I always think is the last song on the album. I think because the last song doesn't have much. I think in terms of hook. I think that's what it is for me too. When I forget poor places, it's that I blend poor places and reservations kind of together in my head. Yeah, because they have very has, similar vibes. Yeah, and reservations is the last song and it's longer, so you think that it's going to have the hooks that this song actually is the song that has. So yeah, I for me, I think when I first heard the album, I was like, why doesn't this album end here? <laughs> you know, I know I, I, they do it on Ghost Is Born too, where I think reservations has a perfectly good start. And they're, but then they're like, instead of fleshing this out into a full song, what if we just end on some ambient whatever? Um, yeah, well, and I get Ghost like, Born has like a fifteen-minute track or something. Yeah, and that that one's ambient whatever kind of sucks, but it starts very nice. Uh, I don't know. I get it in terms of like narrative theming. I do think it maybe goes on a bit long. It's like four minutes. Um, yeah, uh, with poor places or with with reservations. reservations that end of yeah. Like, yeah. 
I mean, it makes sense to talk about these songs as as part of is you know part of the same thing. I think poor poor places is more of like that has a pop song hook, but mm-hmm. it it kind of brings the themes together. It's kind of a nice you know. I talk about like the curtains close. I I I think we've talked about this before of like you know closing the curtains on the album like that kind right. of you know when the last songs do that like. That that song always feels, and it does that by also bringing out the like the numbers station, which is yeah. I guess where the name comes from. And Wilco is also like a military slang, I guess. It's um, like trucker slang, isn't it? Yeah, trucker slang. Yeah. Will comply. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot comes from a, a numbers station recording, and apparently they got sued uh, for using the recording, oh and they had God. to settle. I, yeah, it, we didn't mention it earlier, but she, like she pops up. A little bit and I'm trying to break your heart oh um, and then she doesn't come back again until right now yeah well I, I guess that's my big complaint is like I would have liked the number station to be a more recurring motif throughout the album I kind and of it only would, I kind of would too it feels like if you're looking for thematic ties you know I think there's something there there's like a, a, a vibe established with I'm trying to break your heart and the number stations of like these are you know, ghost radio waves that you're picking up by accident. You know, you're playing with a ham radio and you're picking up these songs. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the sound effects are sta- are like dial static. And that's cool. And that fits thematically with a lot of the things he's singing about, but like they don't commit to it really. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, that's why Poor Places and I Am Trying to Break Your Heart are my favorite two mm-hmm. songs because they feel like of a piece with each other. And then Reservations. So I will say my, my friend... Uh, was really into the song. I I don't really I I don't know. He 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 said he, he had a deep emotional investment in it and it sort of described how he felt about life and and like his current partner at the time. And to me, it's like, I, I just, I, again, maybe I'm the person who's like more spiky and emotional, but it it seems so kind of reserved and it, it I just don't have that kind of mindset of like this kind of, uh, I don't know if it just, it, there's something about it just doesn't really catch me emotionally in a way that I feel like it should or it's supposed to. I, I I think that's super valid. You know, the way it works for me is it feels like an extended epilogue to poor places. Yeah. And on that level it it really it really works. It's like um you know yeah. Daydream Nation ends with like a three part closing track or whatever. Um mm-hmm. this feels like a two part closing track. You have like poor places as like this full song and then you have the mood extended into like this lonely chord progression that it it's itself fades into this kind of drifting ambience and like that works for me like if, if i wouldn't i would never listen to reservations isolated from the album yeah 
because uh, there isn't a lot there but we, when you mix it in with poor places it it makes sense and it's like an even more kind of reserved and like you know resigning right. <laughs> resigning them resigning myself to my fate kind of thing and also it feels like that kind of feeds into the the gen x thing too because like when it comes to like expressing like love for somebody or hatred for the world there's nothing like less committal than just like i have reservations <laughs> i i mean yeah i think that's my i think that's my big problem with with wilco or at least the sentiment like because if you compare this to something like you know freaking uh yoshimi battles the peak robots or something right. it goes completely the opposite direction of just being bombastic and over sincere and you know almost self-parody but in a i i don't know i always responded more to the to the the flaming lips version of that i'm excited for also, whenever we do our flaming lips episode because i think y- yes it works really well in yoshimi and then works really badly on what is it war of the mystics when they try to get political <laughs> Oh God! Well, speaking of the Flaming Lips, this is actually appropriate because the Flaming Lips were also signed to Warner Brothers, yep. and they were also a similar uh, artist who, like, never had any really big success outside of their one like s- weird freak radio hit um, right. in the '90s, which is still more and, than what Wilco had, but it had been a while since then. Yeah, and they had a similar thing of like uh, they were they were kind of an artist that was being supported because. Uh, you know, somebody at the the somebody who is a higher up basically just liked them and mm-hmm. kind of let them do things, even though because it wasn't like a, a huge major investment or, or loss for them. Um, well, it, it's funny. This is really something for the Flaming Lips episode. The like counter the '90s counterpoint to the era we're talking about now is the post Nirvana weird band Gold Rush, where every yeah. major label was like finding whatever weird band was half mentioned by Kurt Cobain in an interview and signing them. And the yes. Flaming Lips came from that and were like one of the leftovers from that era. Yeah, but the, but by the time the like late 90s hit, that was over, you and know. They were kind of over, you know, like they they'd had some they had had good albums, but it'd been a while since the one hit and nobody really thought about them. Yeah, and the reason we're we're talking about the Flaming Lips again, right, uh, <laughs> so so no, no. This is this is going somewhere, I promise. Wilco um after this album came out, they 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 shipped this album to um, to uh, Warner Brothers to reprise records, and apparently the day before, the guy who had originally signed and was like the main supporter of Jeff Tweedy, who's the guy who ran um, Howie Klein, who ran uh, Warner's uh, records, uh, had departed, and the day after they delivered it to whoever who was the temporary person running it, it was David Kahn, and apparently he said. The record was so bad that it would kill their career. Although in the book, he says that he never said this, but whatever, that could just be uh, the, the damage imp- control. The impression from the documentary is that he says this needs some re-records. Yeah. But no, uh, so one of the, uh, their, their A&R representative, whose name was Mio Vukovic, was the one who said that uh, they needed some changes. Oh, I see. But like reportedly, the, the higher-up guy uh, who had... Who had temporarily replaced Howie Klein, which was this David Kahn guy is to say that it is the guy who said it was bad. And Wilco was like, well, hell no, we're not going to change this. Like this has been a horrible process of like, you know, recording this. <laughs> they had lost two band members mm-hmm. and um, you know, like it was just, they were not in a place where, and the thing is like Wilco would regularly sell out their shows. They weren't like a huge big act, but you know, for the amount of, you know, for the amount of money that 
for the amount of like budget that they were given for their album, it's it it wasn't like that much. But the the weird thing about Warner Brothers at the time is they had just merged with um, AOL. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And they became AOL Time Warner. So there was a kind of, uh, they had uh, not a lot of money at the time. And so there was a push to really get like radio singles out of the artist. And this is exactly around the time when Howie Klein left. So uh, the dynamics had changed and there was nobody at the label really who was, or at least the higher ups weren't really supporting or, you know, as strong on Wilco. Mm -hmm. And at the time Wilco had gotten enough you know critical praise and whatever so they're like fine you know we'll uh let's let's just leave this label so they left you know they were given the option to leave i think they were i don't know it seems like uh the the whole how things were going on at reprise records was just a fucking mess but there was like there were a lot of like you know dyna- changing dynamics in the industry around the time that are <laughs> way even more true today than they were at the oh, time oh my god yep <laughs> Um, it sounds it sounds like, and this is some of this is news to me, and this is like it makes a lot of sense. It sounds like cutting your their losses, you know, like yeah, feeling yeah. like in, in the confusion and like in a tightening of the budget, just cutting anything that you know would require further investment. But the thing is, Reprise doing this massively backfired because Wilco got a ton way. of yeah, <laughs> Wilco got a ton of press. And and Reprise got a ton of negative press, mm-hmm. and um, as a result, and and as a result, as of them putting it on streaming, like the album leaking and all that, it's their best. It's their best selling album. The album actually went gold, mm-hmm. um, like you know, two years after it came out. It's uh, according to Wikipedia, it sold over six hundred thousand. Uh, I I don't know exactly how many. It is their best selling album though, um, and. Uh, I think by the time that uh, Reprise <laughs> realized that what they were doing, they felt so ashamed that they started invest. They're like, uh, who else do we have? A uh, Flaming Lips. Uh, mm-hmm. They started giving the Flaming Lips more resources. And they're like, uh, so so in the book, it says that the Flaming Lips were like, or like, uh, yeah, we really benefited from them screwing over Wilco because they felt so bad. I was wondering what the deal was because in the doc, like Jay Farrar has like uh, uh, an offhand comment about like oh yeah warner brothers is great they gave us like 85k to to record and it's like soft bulletin i think the flaming list got like 200 300k like a huge yeah. amount of money to make that album you know of yeah like and that was that was before recent time yeah that was before wilco was dropped even so i think i think uh, Flaming Lips just had some big supporter uh, at Warner Brothers. It was very strange that they were allowed to do what they were. Well, and they got but they yeah. got a push when Yoshimi came out. You know, don't yeah, you exactly. Got onto like movies and stuff. Like, and I think I think that's partly a result of of this. Like, because I because Yoshimi was like kind of vaguely mainstream. Like, I heard Do You Realize in commercials and right. stuff. Like, yeah, it was like um, that was the era when you would hear you know Gravity Rides Everything on a car commercial or Pink Moon on a car commercial. <laughs> um but but yeah but yeah um so uh you know it took a while and um eventually wilco was shopping around they had tons of people interested in them and i think that's how they kind of realized like holy shit we're actually kind of a big band um and that's the thing wilco is not an indie band they were they were you know they weren't like a big mainstream success but you know they the record went gold like you know they were on a major um, label and then they 
move to another subsidiary of that major label. Yeah, eventually they were like looking for indie labels, but like the indie labels just weren't able to provide enough, you know, to sell enough with their scale. So they eventually signed to None Such Records, which is just a another subsidiary of AOL Time Warner, which they joke about. It's just ridiculous. Like <laughs> it's the same it's the same ownership company, it's just a different, you know. But yeah, like None Such Records had like uh Lori Anderson and like mm-hmm. I think like I don't know, there was like Giannis Zanakis and like, you know, a lot of more kind of like art music um i know that the brian wilson album like when he made smile that was on none such well, wasn't bjork on none such for a bit i don't know i don't know if she was i feel like there is um, a period when none such was like we are like the avant-garde and also the, the neoclassical oh, yeah. stuff yeah it seems like they had devandra banhart too and like bjork was on there and yeah so they did have some indie artists too but then they also had you know that. that also might have been l- later in Bjork in the career, Bjork's career. Yeah, they also had like classical composer John Adams or like, you know, John. Oh, yeah. Uh, apparently. But yeah, I w- who was I thinking of? John Zorn. That's who I was thinking John of. John anyway. Zorn. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um. So yeah, like, and Wilco's like, well, yeah, fuck yeah, we want to be that type of artist, even though they're not fully that type of Absolutely. artist. But you can tell Jeff Tweedy has a lot of insecurity and wants to be that kind of artist while he's also being you know and you can sort of tell that with the direction they went with their next album but anyway um so yeah none such records and it was released uh critically acclaimed sold well and we can read from the pitchfork review now if you want i i would love to um i one thing to mention in the pitchfork review goes into this is but this was a common thing at the time and you can see you know david frick uh who is like at the time was like the guy oh god his his interview in the um in the uh documentary in the in the wilco doc he just he's like you know people want everything instantly he just like his this weird smirking expression it's he's like a late 70s stereo he feels like a character from almost famous like yeah it's just like and and he's just like oh people want everything instant these days it's like what are you what are you what are you saying about that i don't know it's my just, favorite is when he's waxing poetic about like you know like yeah this is the cd but it's not about the object it's about you know the thing on here the data on the object the music that's what matters like that's gonna get to the people um he's it's just like it you know, it, it's it reminds me of when I watch like contemporary documentaries, like that Woodstock documentary, Woodstock '99 documentary, mm-hmm. um, where it's like all kind of you know, it's got kind of big name, pre, you know, music press people, but they're all saying stuff that is so very of the era of the zeitgeist that it's so meaningless outside of that. That's what that. That's what the well, what and, that guy and says. David Frick was like antiquated at the time. Like he was like. I don't remember how old he was, but he felt like the old guard. He was in the Rolling Stone. He was a Rolling Stone guy. Nobody read Rolling Stone at the time. Um, He's apparently around the age of my parents, so yeah, I guess that he would have been close. He would have been close to fifty. He looks pretty young for for. for He does. He he aged well, but he's got like a seventies haircut still. The point is, the point I'm trying to get at is that every review had to acknowledge the story. Every review Mm -hmm. had to acknowledge the myth making, and so. I, every review I ever read of, of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot at the time, the entire first half was like about the story of this album and whether it fulfills it or not, you know, depending on if yes. it's like spin or filter, you know, blender, whatever fucking, you know, percolator. <laughs> I don't know. But it's, 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 <laughs> inter- it's interesting because this is a restrained inter- uh, review for Pitchfork of the early aughts. And I think it's because 
it has to establish itself here. There's still some pitchfork cringisms, some kitchforkisms uh, we'll get to, but the, the review was written by Brent Sirota. I have to mention that because this review is actually still up on the website. Mm-hmm. A lot of their old reviews aren't. You have to go through archive.org, but for some reason they scrubbed the names of a lot of these authors. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah. So you can only find, I, I only found it through Wikipedia, through Wikipedia citations. Because it doesn't actually say the name of the author on the review, which really pisses me off. But anyway, Pitchfork, a long history of uh, not treating its writers well or paying them well or anything like that. And and post-Conde nastification, I'm sure it's gotten worse. Yes. Um, So, okay. God. Uh, Okay. Here we go. Myth, it has been said, is the buried part of every story. On April 23rd, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot finally emerges into the light of day, having spent the last year interred in its own cluttered mythology. A hermetic studio gestation with the inscrutable guidance of Chicago expat slash kindly wizard Jim O'Rourke. Internecine squabbles. Wow, big word. Conflict and resolution with American media behemoth AOL Time Warner. The release portentously slated for September 11th, but mysteriously delayed. The indecipherable shortwave radio prophecies, and eventually the hero's welcome with its first, with the first stirrings of spring. <laughs> it's all there: the miracle birth, the unlikely hero, the um benevolent mentor, the primordial menace, good over evil. Joseph Campbell would be pissing himself if he weren't dead. There's so That's, much. That, that's the most <laughs> that's the most pitchfork uh sentence joseph can joseph campbell will be, would be pissing himself if he weren't dead we'll eventually get to at some point talking about pitchfork how much lester bangs ruined music criticism forever uh, <laughs> as everybody wants to pretend they're him and this is very much that it's like some guy pulling out the most ridiculous like vocabulary and most like you know grandiose intro and then undercutting himself by saying piss and and, and fucking you know and a music review that's the rock and roll way you're putting internecine and portentous in your fucking review and then mentioning joseph camp it's like you're all so predictable yeah well and i i guess this is comes in the context of them giving the album like we said a 10.0 which they did give more early in their days Mm -hmm. like i think this was one of the last ones they gave to for a while and then you know there's a few other notable ones that you might know that i won't say what they are but you can look them up anyway um the um so i think part of that is like you know it's like we have to build a myth around this because we have to make a big deal of this because it's a fucking you know we're giving this a perfect score and we almost never give anything a perfect score so uh, let me read a little bit more sorry yeah go ahead the miraculous birth narrative of wilco's fourth album yankee hotel foxtrot is already old hat banished from straight edge aol time warner imprint reprise on the cosmically short-sighted judgment of label executives who deemed this album a career ender wilco streamed yankee hotel from its left-wing website i i i don't i couldn't access i mean i didn't see the website back then i don't know how left-wing it was i mean Um, left-wing at the time was just being like anti-bush like i'm sure it wasn't anything that radical yeah but yeah, to, before signing to weirdo progressive AOL Time Warner imprint Nonsuch, long is the way and hard that leads from AOL Time Warner into the light, I guess. Oh, Lord. Uh, the one thing I want to say is um, 
Uh, okay. Oh, here, I'll, I'll read this part. But myth is always an afterthought, and these days the motif I like chewing on best is, without question, that of the unlikely hero. Who would have predicted this album of an album of this magnitude from Wilco? As much as I love the band, the fact remains that they were together for five years before they produced anything that could stand with Uncle Tupelo's March 16th through 20, uh, 1992, or Anodyne. And he talks about some of the other albums. Um but I think this kind of is one of the things that probably helped sell the this idea to you that this was a grandiose artistic statement. Absolutely. Which like, yeah. yeah, which there are glimpses of, but you know, it ain't no, you know, today. Uh, no, that's. I think the, the most damning, like, weird flashback is uh, the line about Tweety bequeathing the old Wilco sound to Ryan Adams, a name I haven't yes. heard in years. Yes. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's aged well. Yeah, Great. Woof. <laughs> um, Ryan Adams is like, I, I, I suppose we have to cover that because that was yes. one of the more, the Mac DeMarco of his time, like the more inexplicable success stories of the era. Yeah, it's, it's saying that basically, um, you know, Jeff Tweedy abandoned his alt country. Uh, mantle and and bequeath that to Ryan Adams and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, Ryan Adams, who nobody respected even at the time. So like, I think it's even more damning than it comes off. It's it's interesting. It's like a lot. Of, I feel like I wonder if I read the Pitchfork review first because Pitchfork is making a lot of like comparisons that would have turned me off, like to Steely Dan or Eagles or Wings, mm -hmm. um, like that. I would have said no, absolutely not. Um, but it's true. I've definitely seen, yeah, the Tom Petty, uh, uh, um, uh, um, you know, comparisons too. Right. But yeah, I, I think I think that the, basically the gist of the review is it does say like, oh, you know, this is so revelatory, whatever. You know, it's, it's it talks in that in that great. But then it also references it's like, but it's you know, it has a it's it's American, it's an American album, and it's in you know enthrall to the classics. You know, right. you might be surprised in how like you know you might be surprised in how uh, experimental it is, but you might be surprised in how catchy and how these are these are real songs, not like fucking idiotech. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my own uh, you know but, I added that, but part. you can tell and it, like it's it's funny because it's. It's a it's a review that treats the ten out of ten review as a four gallon conclusion and spends the rest of its runtime justifying what it knew it had to start with. Like mm -hmm. there's almost a resignation to the fact that this album is great and you already know that. Yeah, which is I again it's so interesting to me because it just doesn't feel like the bombastic kind of thing doesn't feel kind of in in step with what the music actually is. And mm -hmm. I I think maybe maybe it actually kind of takes away from this album viewing it in that way. Um I don't know. I think so too. I I think it's a really good album. I think if I were to hear it devoid of context back in the day it would have become like a favorite. But it's funny. I was going to say it's not even trying to be grand. It kind of is. But it's it's trying to be grand from such like a low key and unassuming spot that it it feels small and holdable in a way that something like OK Computer or Soft Bulletin is trying to blow out. I uh, feel like it it perfectly bridges the gap between Radiohead on the one hand 
and like the shins or a band like that on the other hand this like transition between this like you know highly ambitious bombastic um you know critically acclaimed you know uh existentially uh, you know, uh, dealing with existential things that some of those, you know, Y2K albums were into the kind of like wholesome twee indie mumblecore stuff. Yeah. Mumblecore stuff with that tended to have like more dry and subdued production. I, I think that's a really good conclusion. Then that probably would lead us into our next episode. So. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So our next episode, whenever we record it, uh, will be on The Shins and O oh, Inverted World. And I have a lot to say about that album. An album but... that will change your life. <laughs> um, if you um, thought this was good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, well, thank you all so much for tuning in. I, I, I know we went late, we went probably longer than we planned to, but it's okay. We, we got in a lot of good points. And this is also, this is the, we're setting up um, sort of an argument and perspective that we're going to be following up on and coming back to as we go. So this is sort of like the the Rosetta Stone from which all the rest of the episodes are going to be referring back to. Yes, and I think we have a plan for maybe like four different albums that we want to cover to begin with, and mm-hmm. then after that, you know, we can decide and maybe take a break. But a lot of these are all albums that came out at the beginning of the 2000s and have like an important sort of role in that uh, that era of culture, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I, I, I think if I were going to, I was going to come out with like, what was the effect of this on the landscape, right? Um, mm-hmm. And maybe we can we can we can pin those down as conclusions. I think, yes, the main one I think of personally is the, like I said before, like the 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 distinction between the indie little guy fighting the major label big guys, you know, and winning, and that success story. I think that success story is existing and popularizing, and also being underneath kind of hollow, like untrue. They, yes. Um, says so much about the world of indie music at that time and to come almost more than like any actual album could because this is the indie as an aesthetic indie as a style to be evinced um rather than as your circumstances that you're recording in is going to be the definition going forward yeah i mean it's like uh it is perfect uh sets the stage for an artist like mitski or something like yeah that. this this is how we get from you know we jam Econo to the strokes is in you know trust fund kid fashion models <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and i think i think yeah i, I think it's really easy to I, I mean it's indie rock but it's it's not indie at all i mean they are a major label artist they have that that sort of budget there isn't really anything outside of you know some sensibilities like they that that is what they are and you know that isn't a good or a bad thing but it was definitely sold as being kind of part of that in a way that i think uh is a far cry from what what the indie music was in the 80s and even the 90s to some extent right um but especially the 80s um you any final thoughts no, not really. I mean, it's a good album. Um, I think it's like, like I think it's influential in the way that um, the production, especially the kind of dry production. I think it's like, it's an album that like, there are a lot of people in the documentary that say like, well, Wilco's the kind of band that you'll come, you know, that will age well and you'll come back to and, uh, you know, that will really grow on you and people will see the influence. And 
there's an extent to which I roll my eyes at that, like because they're they they are not you know this massively for that like you know a kid A is or whatever. But there's an extent to which that's true, and I think part of that is like the production does not really sound particularly dated. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's even more true of Ghost is Born from what I've heard. It still sounds really good and there isn't really like, you know, it just like there's something nice about this kind of subdued nature of the album that that really reads well, especially, you know, if you're used to listening to like lots of overblown, cheesy, whatever, overproduced mm-hmm. pop stuff. There is something that's 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 really nice just about the sound and feel of this album that that really makes it. Uh, stick out in that context. So in that context, I definitely uh, agree with that. It definitely feels like pre-Loudness Wars kind of album, which is weirdly refreshing. Yeah, well, okay, so next episode we're doing The Shins? Yep. Let's do it. Yep, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. In the poor places tonight I'm not I'm in the poor places tonight